Welcome to Lexis, the podcast all about language and linguistics. I'm Lisa Casey. I'm Jackie Glancy. And I'm Dan Clayton. So we're really pleased to welcome on this episode of Lexis, Dr. Fraser Heritage, who is a corpus linguist with a particular interest in the representation of gender and sexuality across different forms of digital media. He works at Manchester Metropolitan University, and we're going to be talking to him about loads of stuff, loads of different things today. So welcome, Fraser. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Dan. Hi, Lisa. And hi, Jackie. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I've been a really long time listener of Lexis and really happy to be in such great company. Raw. As I said, we, we have lots of people who are like, who, who are you again? <laughs> really nice to have you on. So your your work is really varied and really, I mean, really, really interesting. Lots of it across video gaming, the manosphere. You've looked at US presidential debate, Disney princesses, the whole gamut. Lots of your work seems to have representation sort of at its core. So can you tell us a little bit about the threads that run through your work, any shared methodologies that kind of spans them, and what what, what really interests you in sort of the areas you've chosen to research? Of course. Thank you, Lisa. So it's really kind of you to be so kind about the varied nature and the fact that it's interesting. I really appreciate that. But for me, what really interests me is looking at ideas about gender, sexuality, and how those kind of intersecting identities with those become normalized and mainstreamed. So when we think about, for example, gender in video games, millions of people play video games every day. And often we don't quite realize the kind of ideas that are being presented to us within that medium. Mm -hmm. And so for me, if forms of mass media are a way that we can change the ways in which we think about concepts like gender, sexuality, race, ethnicity, migration, and so forth, then I really think that that's worth looking at in a lot more detail. And so for me, because I'm interested in how ideas of these broad social concepts and social actors and identities and actions are normalized, I do feel that there is a need to look across either multiple texts. So for example, if we're thinking about some of my works on the manosphere, I don't really think that taking a single post on a thread on Reddit is going Mm. to do enough justice to making those generalizable claims about how things and ideologies are normalized. But if we can't take, say, multiple texts, then at least taking very large representative texts like an entire video game that might be played by millions of people. And so in order to look at that kind of representative sample, I typically use corpus linguistic methods. And I know a few people have spoken on your podcast before about corpus linguistics. So people like Robbie Love in one of the previous Mm. episodes spoke about the spoken BNC. So I'm not going to get too much into corpus linguistics for the listeners. But for me, what I'm really interested in methodologically is a sub-discipline of corpus linguistics called corpus assisted discourse studies which is often abbreviated to cads and that's basically the combination of corpus linguistic methods so things like using computers to look at the statistical frequencies at which words occur in tandem with methodologies and practices associated with discourse studies so looking at things like how uh, gender is represented and how we can use those computational methods to look at those ideas a bit more broadly mm. And it seems like popular culture 
is quite a kind of key focus of a lot of that. I mean, I wouldn't, I guess the manosphere is kind of unpopular culture, but you know, you mm-hmm. could think about the other stuff as like popular culture in the media more broadly. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to take that as an idea of manosphere as unpopular and culture, actually. I really <laughs> like that. But yeah, 100%, you know, there's a lot of pop culture. I think most of it is just because I'm a massive nerd. I love my pop culture. But I do think that, you know, pop culture really is a way in which we're normalizing ideas, right? It's it's popular for a reason. And so for me, what I'm really interested in is, you know, how p- multiple people are engaging with certain representations and what that means for society more broadly and exploring that through language. Great. So, Fraser, your work, particularly on video gaming and representation of gender, that's where we first came across you. So could you tell us about your research there and and what particularly you were looking at? I originally started my PhD back in about 2017 or so. And in that PhD, what I was really interested in was this idea of can we use corpus linguistics to explore gender and sexuality within video games. And I'd read quite a lot of work on video games, and I'd read a lot of people saying that they were looking at gender in video games, but actually what they were talking about was gender and sexuality around video games. Mm. Or they were talking about how people talk about gender and sexuality after playing a game or while they were playing it. And so I know Heidi Cawthorpe in one of the previous episodes as well has made this distinction between, you know, the actual video games are text and the text surrounding it. Mm. And as I was going through looking at, you know, the work in corpus linguistics, it only had ever looked at it around the video game as a text. Mm. And that kind of really frustrated me because what I really wanted to do was look at the actual video game. It's played by millions of people. So then I kind of thought, okay, well, video games are so popular and they very much are like a text. Why has nobody used corpus methods to look at them? And then so with my interest in gender and sexuality, it kind of followed naturally that I would look at gender and sexuality in games. And so for my PhD, I decided to look at the Witcher video game series, mainly because it was one that I was playing at the time. And despite it coming out all of those years ago, it's really retained its popularity. And I think that's in no small part thanks to the Netflix show and Henry Cavill just being gorgeous and everyone, regardless of gender or sexuality, absolutely loving him. I remember this really distinctly because I remember the conversation where I asked you about which video game you were doing for your PhD and you said The Witcher and I had no idea who it was. And when the Netflixies came out, I was like, oh, the thing that guy I met once was talking about. (laughs) You mentioned it to me that you'd spoken to Frank. The Witcher, The Witcher's amazing. What a great game. (laughs) It's great. Apparently my PhD supervisor's nephew, my my old PhD supervisor was able to be like, one of my students is looking at The Witcher for his PhD. PhD. If you study hard, you could do that too. Best way to sell linguistics to young children is just you can do video games. When I was doing that, what I originally wanted to do was compare that to a huge reference corpus of loads of other video games, like a hundred video games. Mm. But my supervisor at the time, Paul Baker, he's fantastic, amazing corpus was great in gender and sexuality. But he looked at me and said, okay, well, let's say each video game costs you £10 to buy. Do you know how much money that's going to cost you (laughs) and how many hours of time it's going to take you to make that? Which was really, really kind of him to point out because I hadn't factored that in. But, you know, for me, it was, okay. well, let's take The Witcher as a case study and then let's expand it out. And, you know, what is reasonable and what can be funded. And I guess for me, from the PhD, one of the first takeaways that I had was 
yes, you can use corpus methods to explore gender and sexuality in video games. It's something you can actually do. But when we start to really get into the nitty gritty of the data within The Witcher, it was really illuminating because what you could see is that by using corpus methods, we could see things like the language which was associated with female characters. Mm. And there was a real lack of prevalence of naming of female characters compared to male characters. Can so, ask, can, sorry, can I ask a really quick clarifying question as a non-gamer? I hope you'll forgive me for this. And I'm, apologies to all the gamers who are going to be shouting that this <laughs> is the dumbest question ever. So this is a game that you play on a PC or online. Do you play Xbox. it alone? So you typically play it alone. But okay. you can play it on PC, Xbox, PlayStation. Okay. Was this was this a case of when when you say the data that you took out of the game, is this the words of the characters in the gameplay? Is that yeah. what we're talking about? Yeah, so it's all the words okay. within that gameplay. So okay. it's all the words that a player might interact with. Mm-hmm. It's all the words that you might... So quite often in video games, you might pick up a text, like a book, and you'll be able to read a small paragraph of that. Oh, okay. So it's all of that, all of that language together. And did you extract it all? Yeah, I extracted all of it. And so believe it or not, just with one of the video games, The Witcher 3, that was over 300,000 words. Okay. I mean, it's there's huge amounts of language in there, isn't there? And how did you do it? Did you just have to play every option or did you scrape the code or something? So this is a really fun one. So one of the things that I then developed as part of the PhD and a subsequent paper was kind of a distinction between the different methods that you can use. Mm. And so for the PhD, I scraped all of it and it took a lot of time to clean that data because it was imbued with loads of bits of code that didn't really make much sense and, you know, was really difficult to kind of organize. You can play the video game and do all the different dialogue options. So if you remember those books from like the eighties, where it was like choose your own adventure, yeah, yeah. that's I'm a lot still, of them. yeah. The Warlock of Firetop Mountain, that was the one I got. I lent <laughs> it to half the class. Credentials there, Dan. Well, I was a very early D and Dia back in like the early eighties. Yeah, so it, I go way back with this sad nerdery. I mean, I love how nerdery has just continued from like the eighties <laughs> and is still going. It's amazing. But all of those kind of like choose your own adventure books, mm. all of those are very similar to how video games are structured these days. So, you know, do you pick the sword or do you pick the shield? And if you pick the sword, you'll get dialogue option A. And if you pick the shield, you get dialogue option B. So if you were to play it, you'd have to take one route doing all the sword, one route doing all the mm. shield. And then it becomes this huge branch with all these different permutations and it becomes an incredible amount of data to have to transcribe. And hours and hours and hours of of just playing, right, I assume, to be yeah. able to extract it. Yeah, Yeah. so The Witch is very similar. And for one of the chapters of my PhD, I actually took one single quest line within that that only takes about 10 minutes to play through. But it took me over 50 hours of playing it mm. just to transcribe all of the different possible like routes that you could take. Okay. So if you imagine some of these video games, you know, you can play them for 300 plus hours and still not get all of the story. Mm-hmm. Add to that all the transcription that you might have to do. Yeah. Suddenly you're into multiple hundreds of thousands of hours that you could take. So it's absolutely incredible. So once I scraped all of that with sort of a few computer programs I was able to find. I was then able to run all these corpus patterns. And obviously what I found were things like 
female characters were massively underrepresented. And we were able to look at things like the frequency at which named female characters occur compared to the frequency at which named male characters occur. And we see a really distinct difference. And then we're able to look at things like what kind of roles those female characters have. So looking at kind of what words they occur with and how they're using context. And what we see is that typically the only referred to female characters are sorceresses. And they all take on this kind of advisory role for male uh, leaders. So we have this kind of subordination of women that we might not necessarily have clocked if we weren't to have used those corpus methods. And then so I decided to take that PhD a little bit further and I did my book in 2021, which looked at kind of the ways in which video games represent gender a bit more broadly as well. So mm. in that, I took a small reference corpus. So I actually did that reference corpus that my supervisor was like, just be careful because it can get very expensive very quickly. But I massively reduced it down to just 10 video games published between 2012 and 2016. And in that reference corpus, which was, I think, about a million words, if I remember correctly, I was able to find things like male characters and male pronouns were typically the agents of verbs, so doing actions. And all of these verbs were really sort of physical or related to warfare, so like fighting kind of words, whereas female characters and female pronouns were typically either the patients of verbs, so it was, you know, men hitting women or women being hit by xyz and they were passivized quite a lot but when they were actually doing verbs it was typically verbs around talking so verbal process types so we have things like women telling people what to do women saying you shouldn't do this or gossiping and so you have these real gendered stereotypes mm -hmm. coming in in the language that again you might not have got if you hadn't have run it across a big data set mm. I was going to say, that's disappointingly stereotypical. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, you know, there are some games which do have some more progressive representation, which I think is really nice. But on the whole, what we can see are those issues around, you know, these kind of stereotypical representations. Mm. They, were they, so from that, from that corpus of a million, that slightly larger corpus you talked about, were, were the games all sort of medieval in their setting? Was there something about the setting of it that would sort of lend itself to that really stereotypical representation? Or were any of them modern and therefore sort of didn't have the excuse, even though it's not a great excuse? Some of them were actually quite modern, which is oh, a okay. shame. They were all within the kind of fantasy genre. So, you know, they weren't kind of things like Flight Simulator. Or, you know, and they were all aimed at 16 years old plus. So, you know, I didn't include things like Barbie's Magical Princess Island as a video game. I mean, why not, Fraser? Does it not have value? <laughs> of course it has value. It's just a very different genre to something like yeah. The Witcher. Digest, digest. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe there is something to be looked at in Barbie, the Magical Princess Island. <laughs> but within that, I also then looked at things like I took World of Warcraft, for example, Right. And so, Dan, you probably know World of Warcraft. You're making a terrible judgment about me there. <laughs> but yes, I, I have played it. But for listeners who might not, so World of Warcraft is one of the best-selling mass multiplayer online role-playing games. So World of Warcraft was released in 2004, and it's been one of the best-selling role-playing games since. And so really what I was interested in was, okay, well, it's at this point now 20 years old, but at that point it was about 15 when I started doing it what change has there been in 15 years mm. and so I took a dialogue that was said by male characters and female characters 
And I looked at the ways in which the semantic fields that they were drawing on changed across time. So for me, it was slightly different to some of these problematic variationist studies, which are like, I'm going to look at all the essentialist features that men and women use and compare them and saying, OK, well, these are, you know, what the company thinks are acceptable representations of speech styles. And these are kind of the ways in which non-living characters are being normalized as mm. what they're speaking. And that, I think, is a really important distinction. And what I found was that back in 2004, 2005, female characters were typically talking about, you know, these really stereotypical things of like healing and nature and wanting to nurture and help <laughs> and all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And all the male characters in 2004, 2005, can you guess what their kind of language was all about? Me punch orc. Me punch orc, basically. Yeah. So it was all fighting. It was all about yeah. war. And then I in... really thought you said whore, not orc. Then, then no, that's Grand Theft Auto. You're not that. That's not World of Warcraft. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, it's almost an expectation that there's awful, there's awful representations of women in the modern ones as well. But in the 2020 version, so every about two years, World of Warcraft releases a new expansion pack, and it changes the whole storyline and kind of progresses. But in the 2020 version, what we see is that female characters are much more likely to talk about war and fighting. And so their kind of semantic domains that they draw on become much more in line with what we associate with what men of 2005 were represented as saying. And mm -hmm. the male characters have kind of stayed the same over 15 years or so, which is still problematic in a sense because mm -hmm. we've yeah. got the ways in which women are represented accommodating to the ways in which men are and not vice versa. But at least there's been a change and it's getting better, I think, is the mm. big takeaway. So when you, were, when you were talking about representation of gender, you, you mentioned about the whole idea that lots of these games are from the sort of fantasy genre. And I guess you can argue that, you know, the fantasy genre has conventions that you might expect to see. But you could also maybe see that the fantasy genre has developed over time and is quite fluid in many ways. There's been lots of interesting stuff about representation of gender in more sort of non-binary senses and, you know, challenging stereotypes. Were you a bit disappointed to find that the sort of gender representation that you found in these fantasy video games was a little bit kind of limited and maybe sort of stereotypical? Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to frame it is that, you know, a lot of the representations were quite stereotypical. And, you know, it's not to say that the stereotypes are not possible in the real world, that, mm. you know, we do get the occasional person that does follow a stereotype, but there's so many more opportunities and so much more flexibility and so many more, you know, possibilities of explorations around gender, sexuality, and these really fluid nature of both identities, that it was really disappointing to not see the video games really engaging with that i don't know whether or not part of that is sort of a historical tradition you know if we remember think back even to sort of grand theft auto back in the early 2000s and how problematic mm. and stereotypical that was i think there's been a lot of change and i think we'll get into some of that later in this discussion mm. but i do think that some of these problematic representations are maybe a relic of their time Yes, I was just kind of thinking that one, you know, one of the things that I guess with role playing games and fantasy is you kind of you think it should be about self expression and finding your own path. But of course, if if the limited options are available to you are very much kind of like carved out in stereotypical kind of roots, it makes it quite difficult to to you know be yourself. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think for me, because I'm really interested in how video game companies themselves write characters, mm. you know, I think when you're playing a character, you can role play in any way that you want to role play, right? So yeah. if you want, if you're, say, a cisgender man and you want to role play as a character being a non-binary orc or something, then that possibility is there for you. And I love that. But what I'm really interested in is, okay, that that then comes on to the player, right? That's the player's choice to do that. Yeah. What are the companies doing to encourage that? Right. Yeah. And so it wasn't even until 2020 when Blizzard, who made World of Warcraft, introduced their first transgender character to the video game. So at that point, obviously, it'd been out for 16 years and it had taken them that long to introduce a trans character that mm. was canonically transgender. We've so, we kind of... We've talked a lot about the gender, the gender element, but not so much about the sexuality element. I mean, how much, how much, how much is there of the sexuality element in there? I mean, is there? I, I mean, we've talked a little bit about sort of. Um, this is referencing something Dan said earlier about being seduced by a, a seductress in one of in one of the games. I mean, there are there are. He said no, by the way. But how much? How much actual? sexuality-based decisions is there in the gameplay that that it that it feels you know that it should be included in a gender and sexuality discussion oh that's really interesting so i think because gender and sexuality are so closely tied one of the things that we see a lot of is the production of assumed heterosexuality so you know I think one of the real things that we need to unpick are things like when we see a married couple, for example, mm. it's typically man and woman in a video game. I right? guess that's my question is is how much of it is sort of in there in the in the meat of the of the gameplay? A surprising amount. There's okay. quite a lot all around. So if you go back to The Witcher very quickly, there's a lot of heterosexuality. Mm. A lot. And what some of my more recent work has been trying to do is unpick this idea of when terms about sexuality actually occur in video games. Mm. And it's really, really infrequent. Okay. Be because we have a lot of implicature around sexuality in gaming. So rather than, for example, someone saying, you know, I'm gay or I'm bisexual, you might get someone being like, oh, I really loved him. And it's kind of a, oh, okay. So you're implying, you know, you're kind of making us put a label on you as a character. Yeah. And so you kind of have a lot of this implicature here. And I it, they don't really explicitly say, you know, gay, bi, pan, or any of the yeah. other terms that we would typically label ourselves with. And is it in the background of the quests as opposed to sort of the the action of the quests, if that makes sense? Yeah, quite, quite often, okay. quite often. There are some exceptions with the more role-playing games that really involve the player and make the player make decisions. But those tend to be the games where the characters will sleep with the player regardless of that player's gender. So if you are controlling your character and you're interacting with these other sort of written out characters, they'll typically use very gender neutral pronouns and they won't actually assume, but they'll be like, hey, we should sleep together kind of thing. <laughs> and it kind of, again, it comes down to what the player identifies and the way the player wants to play it. But mm. it's much rarer to see, you know, explicit characters who say things like oh i identify as xyz or i am xyz you quite often get visual representations and it's done a lot through the use of pronouns like oh mm. yes she said that she loved her so you kind of have these ways of constructing it in the language 
as opposed to really explicit named and labeled representation yeah so i mean you mentioned world of warcraft and that's like a hugely popular video game what, what would you say out of the sort of video games of the last 10 years or so you know right up to the present day and you know we've been talking a bit before, before we start recording been talking a lot probably too much about baldur's <laughs> gate which we're both we're both playing at the moment and you know that's that's a hugely popular game which ones are really interesting to you from a gender point of view and why oh that's a really interesting question and i think for me any of these triple a very big high fantasy video games are yeah. what really interests me because as you were saying earlier there are so many possibilities that you could do with gender and sexuality but i think one of the things is that a lot of video games are changing really quite rapidly, both in terms of the kind of graphics that they have, but also the possibilities and scope of them. So if we just go back to the 80s and we think of video games like Pac-Man or Pong or all those ones, mm. there wasn't really that much room to have things like narratives in those, right? Mm. <laughs> Other than, you know, little little like thing that munches moves along the screen. That's about the closest narrative you could make of it. But if we take something like Baldur's Gate, which has just won multiple, multiple awards at Game, the Game of the Year Awards, it is huge. Dan and I were talking uh, to Lisa and Jackie earlier, trying to explain what it's like. <laughs> there are multiple hundreds of thousands of potential gameplay routes that a player can take. You know, they can go through and they can choose to defeat this one enemy in 50 different ways, all of which will lead to different dialogue. And so... You know, even though a lot of the games that I've researched are now getting to the point where they're eight or nine years old, some of the more recent ones that I've begun to look at are really trying to push for a bit of better representation. Some of the research I'm doing at the minute, even though it's in its very early stages, as well as some of the work that I've been doing on gaming communities, is looking at the rates at which diversity and inclusion are kind of accepted and adopted within video games. So one of the papers I did back in 2022 looked at World of Warcraft's first transgender character that I kind of mentioned and alluded to earlier. And what I found within that was that the gaming community were actually really pro-trans inclusion, which was really <laughs> lovely to see. So when this character was first introduced, I kind of had this preconception that because of a lot of the previous research that was done on data from about 2008, that they'd be really transphobic. But I was really pleasantly surprised to see the opposite, that they were really kind of like, yay, finally, we have some trans inclusion. It's about time. And they were doing things like they were using the correct pronouns for this character, etc. And anytime anyone started to be transphobic, you would almost get this really kind of positive dogpile onto that one transphobic person to say, no, please stop, because actually this is really needed desperately in the game. Go mm. away with your transphobia. But one of the things that I'm now doing so... Because of that research, I then went to some video game companies and I was kind of like, hey, I've been doing some research on how people respond to inclusion in video games and yeah. how they kind of lexicalize that. And they actually began, began to get really interested. So I went and gave a talk at one video game company for Pride Month in 2022. And now we're collaborating, looking at how they construct gender, sexuality and ethnicity in their video game using mm. corpus methods and really? they're really they're really on board and they really want to learn more about what language can contribute to tackling edi issues yeah that's it that's really lovely to hear that you know because sometimes you think of linguists being you know in their universities and doing their research but when you hear about somebody who's having kind of like 
such a tangible real world impact. It's it's really it's it's really good to hear. Thank you. Yeah, but I I you know honestly I couldn't do it if it weren't also for the openness of a lot of the video game companies as mm. well. And I think it really is a testament to the changing nature of gaming because we have got more people pushing for better inclusion. And it really does seem like they want to make gaming a much more welcoming space for everyone mm-hmm. as well. That's really On good that note of how lovely gaming is, let's talk about the really unpleasant stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, sorry to rain on everyone's parade. So the the other one of the other branches of the work that you've done is around the manosphere, which we've mentioned a couple of times, but it might be worth you explaining what the manosphere is before we go forward. But can you tell us a bit more about the work that you've done there and what your work kind of showed you about gender representation in that space as opposed to video gaming space of course thank you lisa and so one thing i always say to some of my colleagues is i've got my really lovely little branch of video game research (laughs) where you know that's my safe space and i can go there and always be happy when i do that research and then i have the really horrible manosphere research (laughs) and so the manosphere is a loose network of anti-feminist communities and so that includes communities like men going their own way who argue for male separatism from women so basically that men and women should live in different communities kind of thing you get men's rights activists so sometimes men's rights activism makes sense so when we had things like fathers for justice back in the early 2000s the modern iteration of men's rights activists is basically to blame women and feminism for all their woes which is obviously much more problematic than let's dismantle sort of patriarchal values that Mm -hmm. negatively impact men and masculinity then you have things like pickup artists who believe that they can effectively game relationships so that Mm -hmm. by using certain linguistic phrases and mood structures they're able to enter into sexual and romantic relationships and then you have the area i look at which are called incels so involuntary celibates and so incels are men who wish to but don't have sex with women and they feel that the reason they can't have sex with women is beyond their own control so they typically blame women and the men who have sex with them for all of their misfortune, which is really quite sad. And unfortunately, that kind of leads to a lot of hatred towards the women who they aren't able to have sex with, as well as those men who do have sex with women with that kind of jealousy. And unfortunately, because of that online hatred, that's kind of developed into offline hatred and hate acts. And that since there have been several mass killings in America, in Canada, and in the UK, all motivated by incel ideology. So really quite a harmful gender-based ideology. And so what I'm really interested in is looking at the involuntary celibate community, looking at how they construct ideas about gender, sexuality, and so forth, how they lexicalize that, the Mm -hmm. grammar around it as well, and really picking apart, okay, what is it that underpins that ideology and how do they express it? with the very explicit view of how can we prevent offline attacks? How can we prevent people from joining that community? I I can imagine um, from a lexical point of view, the kind of examples that you might give. But I'm interested when you talk about kind of from a grammatical point of view, what, what kind of examples would you be able to share with us? Of course. So that's things like looking at you know, male male social actors, so men, and female social actors, so different types of women, represented as doing kinds of verbs or having verbs done upon them. Right. Looking at things like, you know, how do we use certain pronouns about those kind of people? 
how do we, for example, substitute their kind of identities in different forms? So is it that we will then use particular nouns to refer to a type of woman, okay. for example? And that happens quite a lot. And so a lot of this work really stemmed from a paper I initially did back in 2020 with Veronica Collar at Lancaster University. And so what we were really interested in is taking a very relatively small corpus, only about, I think it was about 60,000 words or so from Reddit, and looking at how the incel community constructed gendered social actors, so different types of men, different types of women. And what we found is that different types of men were constructed in this really interesting hierarchical nature okay. and with different statuses. So at the very top, you had alphas and chads. Mm. So if you've ever come across this idea of a chad before, they are, you know, they've got an incredibly square jawline. They're really tall and muscular and really desirable. Whereas alphas and alphas are meant to be quite similar. And at the very bottom, you had terms like faggot, which isn't actually meant to be about sexuality. It's just meant to be a general pejorative term about yeah. men. I'm assuming that's that's not accidental, though, right? Like the the use, it's not meant to be a comment on sexuality. But I'm assuming that that sort of relexicalization from from a you know traditional minority group is it's not accidental. No, it's not accidental, but it happens quite a lot across different internet mm. forums, and we can see it being this kind mm. of relexicalization as well, mm. which I find really interesting. Yeah, and in this kind of hierarchical nature, I think that's also really important for how the incel community conceptualizes not just gender but also gender relations. Yeah. So you know, it's only those at the very top of the hierarchy who are able to have sex. Those at the very bottom are doomed to you know, die alone and die yeah. alone, not being touched kind of thing. And so when we also look at things like the ways in which women are represented within that community, what we get are really simplistic hierarchies. You okay. basically get, you know, the most attractive women, women who are somewhat attractive and women who are ugly, the end. And what, know, are the words, right. what are the words that they use for them? So then you have uh, Becky's, uh, the uh, Stacey's are the most attractive. Then it's Becky's, which are kind of, the middle tier then you just have everyone else right i know which is really it's really, really interesting really interesting you would have thought that given the kind of hatred of women they would really go into all the different types of women that they dislike mm. but it's they really also, they also sound like really west really western mm. names dare i say white western names i mean i don't know if if that's fair to say but yeah well it's really interesting so what we also have is when we look at things like the different kind of male social actors although chad is the most frequently occurring they actually have explicit terms to denote different types of men of different ethnicities that aren't white so for example a black chad is normally called a tyrone okay but they don't really use the same for female social actors so they don't have you know a black stacy some people have argued that they might use terms like naomi but my data didn't have any of that in it. And I thought that was a really interesting one, so that you do have terms that explicitly denote people of different races and ethnicities mm. and with a particular gendered angle, but it's very different and it's really complex in how they do that. Do they, do they work a bit like sort of traditional marked terms then, that sort of the chad is the normalised sort of standardised version of an idealised man and a Stacey is sort of the version of that for females and then the all, the terms that sit around them like like a Tyrone or a Naomi are, are a sort of a racially sort of marked term. Yeah that's a fantastic way to conceptualise it Lisa that is that's bang on the money. 
Okay. And so in my 2023 book that was literally published at the end of December, that's exactly what I found. And so when we look at things like different terms that denote different people of different genders and ethnicity, we also see a lot of things around metaphor and metonymy as well. Mm. So obviously metaphor, when we're comparing one thing in terms of another, metonymy is when we're kind of having things that are similar, but refer to either part for whole or whole for part. So we could say number 10 Downing Street, and what we refer to is the entire UK government. Mm. We could refer to, you know, I'm trying to think of another example, but we might have the White House. The White House is or the an, Crown. Or the Crown. And it what that does, it takes a single part of something and it refers to the whole thing. And we might take the whole thing and refer to and actually only mean only a part of it. So what we could say is, for example, senior management have decided. And actually what we mean is the vice chancellor or yeah. the CEO has decided. And so they use those kind of metonymies really quite frequently. And what they do is they'll conceptualize everyone of a particular ethnicity as belonging to a culture. So, for example, we get the phrase curry cell quite often. And so it's meant to refer to Indian incels. So what's happening there linguistically is that they are conflating being mm. Indian with an entire culture. So obviously the culture with the kind of food of curry there as well, right? And so it's kind of this play of metaphor. So it dehumanizes them by referring to them as a food substance. Mm. And then it has sort of skin tone and all the other parts of someone's ethnicity and refers to them through a kind of national dish. And so we've got this really interesting interplay between metaphor and metonymy that dehumanizes incels themselves. And they use these kind of marked terms around food and ethnicity quite a lot. I was yeah. going to say, that's not a self-identification term then. That's one that's been applied by other incels. Oh, no, it? that's self-identified. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it becomes really interesting with how they kind of identify themselves through this play on conceptual language. Interesting. I guess, I mean, there's you mentioned a lot about the kind of hierarchical nature of it as well. And this kind of, you know, the, the simplified kind of, simplistic sort of notion of like ethnic groups and you know people's places within a sort of gendered hierarchy that's that's very much a product of the kind of political social mindset behind it isn't it that that society is organized in a hierarchy that's the way it is they often see themselves as very much kind of you know part of that that's the natural way of things for for that sort of worldview isn't it which is you know opposes a kind of a more sort of holistic democ democratic view of society yeah, exactly. So, you know, and I think it's really interesting because it's not just one hierarchy, right? You have multiple. Mm. So even we were talking a little bit a second ago about how incels kind of self-identified, even within that sort of category of incel, they will put different hierarchies and overlay different hierarchies onto themselves. You know, they'll suggest things like, oh, well, an incel who has been able to hug a woman before actually isn't a true incel compared to someone who has never been hugged or kissed kind of thing. And so we have these different degrees of, you know, what it means to be a true incel or what is normative for the incel community. And so we've got these multiple hierarchies that kind of all come together in ways in which they view social structure more broadly, but all yeah. lexicalized with these really explicit terms, which I find really interesting and also Simultaneously really creative yeah. and sim simultaneously really problematic. Yeah. This is this is too depressing and miserable and lonely. I think we should go back to hugging elves. So let's <laughs> back to video games and uh... So 
So that was obviously my book back in 2023. And something I talk about really explicitly in there as well is, as you know, I've kind of alluded to quite a lot, is the really horrific nature of this data. So yeah. I've only given you a few tame examples, but really when you analyze the language of these kind of communities, you are really analyzing some of the dregs of the internet. And that really does have a horrible impact on your mental health. And so for me, I was really lucky, you know, I've been looking at this for five years. I built really effective support networks and actually been able to do the research because I've had that support network. And I have a whole chapter in that book where I really talk about, you know, the kind of traumatization that looking at this kind of data can have. And it's really difficult when we're trying to pick research on what we want to do because, mm -hmm. you know, we have got research that can have really important impacts, like mm -hmm. dismantling really potentially harmful gender-based ideologies, which can cause really severe emotional distress. So I think there's a lot of need to be careful. And I think when we are investigating certain topics, we need to really be putting ourselves first as researchers, right? We can't mm. let the research actually do harm to us. Yeah, it's an interesting point, isn't it? I and mean, we, we, we definitely talk to other people in the past who've done similar work. So yeah, I think Katie Brown, about some of the work she's done Kate Barber, you know, others who've worked on things to do with toxic ideologies and how they're represented and that sort of data and how harmful it is, you know, particularly around sort of extreme misogyny in the far right. Before, when you were saying, you know, talking about the more kind of outward facing nature of, of your role as well, does it help to have an idea of, you know, what you can do with this knowledge that would that would kind of benefit society? Oh, that's a really interesting question, Jackie. I'd like to think so. Mm. I've always been one of these kind of academics and linguists who, whenever I do research, I don't want it to only impact, you know, academic thinking by itself. Yeah. Yeah. I always want my research to have some sort of root into being able to change society. Right. So if we kind of come right back to the first question, you know, the question being why analyse representation, mm -hmm. it's because... I want something to change nine times mm. out of 10, or yeah. I think there might be a problem and I want to investigate it more broadly. So I think there is that need for, you know, working externally and identifying those routes to, you know, what can do a social good. Okay. So what would your advice be to A-level students who are thinking about exploring the representation of gender and sexuality in the media or and in popular culture? And so I think my first bit of advice is always find something that interests you. And, you know, and I think that if you're going to do research or investigate something, you have to have the connection to it. And be that that you see a problematic representation and you want to look at how it's constructed more broadly and then ultimately challenge that. You know, I think you just need something where you'll be fulfilled by doing that research. And any research that makes you happy and while you're looking at it and you're loving learning in those contexts, mm -hmm. it's the best way to go. Just thinking of the video game stuff, one of the reasons I actually looked at video games is I love playing video games. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how great is it that you can turn around and say, oh, yeah, I get to sit and play video games and it's research. Yes. <laughs> yeah. This is work, damn it. This is work. <laughs> I'm allowed to sit here and play video games for 12 hours. It's work, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the next bit of advice, and it's a little bit like what Deborah Cameron was saying when she was on the podcast uh, for the Language and Gender special that mm. you also mm. expertly followed up on. And I had thought you gave some really good advice to A-level students in that. But it's this idea that, you know, 
we kind of don't use Lakoff anymore. And Lakoff had some really good ideas. Don't get me wrong. And she really kicked off a field. But even at university, I still see students come through and they mm-hmm. say things like, I'm going to use Lakoff as a model for looking at gendered language. And then I just kind of sit there and sob. (laughs) You know, it's not meant to be a framework. And Robin Lakoff herself was really explicit saying, these are just my anecdotal kind of observations (laughs) of the world, (laughs) you know, but I want to kickstart a conversation. And she did that. But a lot of students really do take that as a kind of gospel. And I think that does need to be kind of dropped. It can be acknowledged for the good it's done. But I do think that for students looking who want to look at gender, it's really this idea of when something becomes gendered. So looking at when gender and sexuality are made explicit in a text and when they're talking about gender or sexuality a bit more broadly. So for me, when gender becomes relevant, that's what we as linguists are really interested in doing. And that's what we should really start doing. So when we're thinking about, say, the representation of women, or the representation of men, we look at things like nouns and pronouns and how, mm-hmm. you know, language around those nouns and pronouns that denote gender are used. So is it, for example, that different pronouns are used for different people and how are those pronouns used? You know, are they used in a misgendering way? Are they used to actually acknowledge someone's gender appropriately? You know, looking at things like transitivity, you know, is it that male named male characters are always the ones doing actions or having actions done upon them? And so if you're seeing this repeated pattern of gendered names, is that giving you something? So a good question I always like to ask myself, and it comes back to Joan Swan's chapter in 2002, is yes, but is it gender? Or yes, but is it sexuality? And it's really this idea that regardless of how interesting a finding might be, if you're analysing it through the lens of gender, there needs to be something that really explicitly denotes that it is a gendered feature, right? Because rather than us just saying, oh, they've used a tag question, so they're using a feminine speech style, Mm -hmm. you know, men can use tag questions all the time. Mm Non-binary people can use tag Mm -hmm. questions all the time. But if they're saying, you know, in their speech, oh, I think that men and women should behave like this, that's so much more clearly to do with gender, right? Right. And so for me, I think there needs to be almost a shift with the way that a lot of A-level students approach text for gender with this question in mind of, yes, but is it gender? Yes, but is it sexuality? And looking at how the media constructs it that way. Shall we do do quick fire questions? Oh, go on, go on. Fire fire away. Go on, Lisa. You're you're taking the first shot. So what's your favourite book about language? Oh, Paul Baker, 2014, using corporate to analyse gender. Great answer. <laughs> it was it was one of the first books I read that really spoke to me about how to combine corpus linguistics and gender studies and really sort of has a lot of really interesting chapters about things like normativity, about methodologies. And I just, it's so insightful. It really is my favourite book. And one of the reasons why I approached Paul to be my PhD supervisor. What's your favourite linguistic fact or idea? The most commonly used word in the English language is the, and all of the most commonly occurring words occur about half of each other as it goes down in what we call a Zipfian curve. Ooh, so a Wattian curve? A Wattian curve? Zipfian. Zipfian. Zip. Yep, Z-I-P-F. So a zip curve. Yeah. So it's the, 
then I believe it's of, then and, then a, then to, then in. And it kind of, each one is significantly less and it kind of has a long downward, like that. And that's how we can plot rough distribution of what we would expect in a language. That's cool. That is good. <laughs> so, so, for the, so for the listeners who had no idea what yes. kind of hand gesture I was He's just plotting making, a chart. <laughs> I was plotting a chart and it's basically like an L shape. So it <laughs> shoots right down at the beginning and then kind of tails out. Lovely. And finally, what one bit of advice would you give a pudding linguist? Oh, oh this can't be a quick fire question. That's a really tricky <laughs> must, It must. That's the challenge. <laughs> uh, read. Read a lot. Don't ever stop reading because there's so much knowledge out there. And before you can make a properly informed decision or analysis or really pick apart something, you really need to know the background context of it. Not just academic, but also broader social as well. Great advice. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, that was that was a tricky last one. <laughs> thank you very much, Fraser. That's yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Well, thank you yeah, so much really for having good. me. I really, really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for being so generous with your time.